presenting sponsor for this season of Wild Ideas Worth Living is Ford. Their 2021 Ford Bronco Sport is the SUV that'll get you to your outdoor adventures. It's an off-road SUV built for the thrill seeker, the sightseer, and the day tripper. This SUV has many available features to help you get to your destination. With enough ground clearance, off-roading capabilities, and purposeful design that includes easy to clean surfaces and plenty of interior space, this SUV is your gateway to the outdoors. The Ford Bronco Sport is equipped to help you get out there, to the mountain ranges, the woodland trails, and to the coast. You can learn more about what the Bronco Sport has to offer at Ford.com or in our show notes. Professional mountain biker Elliot Jackson has always been willing to put in the hard work to make his dreams into reality. Elliot was a sponsored motocross athlete by the time he was 12 years old. Then in his 20s, he became one of the top three downhill mountain bikers in the United States. Elliot conquers his goals through discipline and through focus. Now Elliot is applying that same dedication to making biking more accessible to all. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. When he was a kid, Elliot Jackson learned how to market and brand himself as a professional athlete. He got his first sponsor around age 11. He didn't have any coaches, but motocross was his first big lesson in discipline. He would analyze other racers, and he'd figure out how he could outdo them on the track. Elliot got really good. In fact, he ended up winning five national motocross championships before he was 15 years old. Before we dive into Elliot's motocross career, I asked him to take us back to how it all started when he was a preschooler. Tell us how you go from being this like hot motocross <laughs> racer to equally impressive, amazing professional downhill mountain bike racer. Yeah. I mean, how did you start? You know, it's funny because I think when I think back about it, I, I can't really remember the exact age, but I know that when I got my first motorcycle, I was number four. And I remember like picking that number because I was four years old when I got my first motorcycle. Um, and so Wait, I, that's a really young age that your parents let you have a motorcycle. Yeah, no, totally. And I think, uh, so I have a brother that's three years older than me and um, he kind of blazed the trail. And so, yeah, we, we grew up, you know, riding bikes, riding motorcycles, just building jumps in the backyard for our bikes and riding with the neighborhood kids and stuff like that. And I didn't really get serious about motocross until I was 11 or 12. You know, I started doing homeschool when I was in sixth grade and then went to public school seventh grade and then eighth grade. It kind of just started skipping out a bit, not going to school because we were, it's like being a professional athlete. When I was 13 or 14, like I was riding six days a week. That was all I did. I was like, you know, trying to eat good and stuff like that and train. Then when I was 15, I guess the last year I raced, I won four national championships before kind of taking a break um, after that. So you were the top of your game. So how did your parents let you guys, I mean, first of all, you were amazing. Where did you grow up that 
you could really lean into these sports. There must have been some land. <laughs> yeah, there was. We grew up in Oklahoma. So I was born there and I, I didn't move to California till I was 12 or 13. But I, I think, you know, it's interesting because it was like a way for my dad and I and my brother to like, that was what we did. Like that was our thing that we bonded over. And even now it's still like what we talk about. We still watch the motocross races. And my mom, I don't think she actually knew how dangerous it was for a long time until we all started going to the races. And then she was like, what is this? And when we stopped, she was like, thank the Lord. Like, <laughs> I'm so glad that you guys don't do this anymore because it's so dangerous. And, you know, so many people got hurt when we were racing. And, and my brother actually as well, like got hurt really bad. He ruptured his kidney at one of the races. And, um was in like the ER and had to stay overnight and stuff like that. So it was... Yeah, it was it was super gnarly. Well, I'm glad he's okay. And I'm glad you seem like you're thriving. And then how were you guys allowed to kind of skip school? I mean, I know you're a good <laughs> athlete, but your parents had to have been very cool to let you do homeschool. And homeschool is not easy. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think it was interesting because we, so we did, I did this online program, but um, I've always been super into computers and, um, you know, video games and stuff like that. And I remember I must've been, 12 or 13 and the program that we had you could log in to teachers mode and um <laughs> and like get all the answers and so like <laughs> i was like kind of into programming at the time like making little things when i was really young and so i was like would go on these message boards and like post like okay how do i log a key um how do i get a program to run and so i ended up creating this key logger that would run the background when my mom would log on and get her password and then i would log on get the answers and and like put them all in and i'd be like hey mom like i'm done like and i remember the first time i did it in like 10 minutes and she's like what like how did you get done with the whole day's worth of work in 10 minutes or whatever and i was like ah, i gotta be smarter about this i need to like i need to draw it out or whatever you know i think we did that for a little bit <laughs> and then um like, I just didn't go to high school. I don't really know what else to say other than, like, I didn't go to high school. But my parents were really – they're both entrepreneurs. They're, like, both extremely smart. and You're smart. Like, this is impressive. <laughs> well, I don't want to tell kids, don't go to high school, and you can be as smart as Elliot Jackson. But Well, I think they did such a good job of teaching us lessons through what we were doing. So it was kind of like, what is the business of motocross? Like, how do you market yourself? How are you going to sell yourself? Like, what are the economics of like all of these bikes that we have and how do we like sustain this and things like that. So there is like a lot of learning going on. And I think that I'm just intellectually curious in general. So there wasn't a lack of learning going on. So you stopped racing motocross when you were a teenager and on track to become a pro, but why did you decide to stop? Yeah, I think the decision to stop racing motocross was kind of a family decision. Uh, my brother was at this point where the next year he would have had to go pro. And he made this decision that was like, I've done this. I don't want to stay on this grind for the next 10 or 15 years of my life. This is just not what I want to do. And at the time, like amateurs weren't getting paid. So like it was pretty expensive, even though we were on this team, you still had to pay for travel and stuff like that. And then for my mom, she was just like, this is so dangerous. And so she was like kind of happy. And so for me, I was like, man, like, 
I, I don't really want to do it if like my family's not doing it. Um, so it was kind of like thinking back, it was kind of just like a weird decision, but I think it was more me associating motocross with like my family. And if my family wasn't there, then I didn't really want to do it. Elliot retired from motocross when he was a teenager. From there, he went on to community college to get his GED and to complete his first couple of years of college. All the while, he spent his free time doing tricks on his BMX bike at local dirt jumps. So how did you get into mountain biking? I just randomly kind of met some friends when I was like riding BMX at my dirt jumps and they were into mountain biking. And we used to make fun of them because they would ride their mountain bikes at our BMX jumps. But they convinced me to go up to Whistler, uh, which is like a mecca for mountain biking and skiing. But for mountain biking, it's one of the destinations, greatest places in the world. And I loved it. I thought it was so cool. And he happened to be into racing as well. So he showed me all these videos of these World Cup races. And I just thought it was the most amazing things like you're traveling the world, riding in Italy on these like really incredible tracks, these beautiful places. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but there was definitely like an identity crisis there um, where you're doing, it was like I retired from a sport when I was 15. And so you put everything into it. And then the next day it's kind of like, well, what do you think about? What do you do? And it really, when I thought about riding mountain bikes and doing it at a high level, I think it kind of satisfied that piece of me that wanted to do something where I could perform, wanted to do something where I could master something and, and really push myself. How do the skills in mountain biking, how did, how did they carry over from motocross? Like what's similar? Yeah, I think there, there are a lot of similarities in that, you know, you're, <laughs> You're turning, you're jumping, there's speed, there's bumps. Um, the bikes are relatively similar-ish. Uh, but there's a motor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I doesn't. Think, I think it's also at the core of it, like, they're really different, right? Like, the way that you ride a motorcycle well is almost opposite of the way you ride a downhill bike well, where a motocross bike, you're gripping the bike with your knees. Mountain bike, they're open. You have to let the bike move underneath you. A motocross bike, you're kind of holding on to it and it's like pulling away from you. Whereas a mountain bike, you're kind of doing a push up the whole time because you're going down these hills. So there's these like similarities in that, like, you learn what it means to maneuver something on two wheels. You learn what it means to like have something. I don't know, my mom always used to call it like being one with your bike. And I think that feeling carries over the way that the, the feedback happens. But at like a really high level, I think a lot of things are pretty different. Within a year of taking up mountain biking, Elliot became a pro. By the time he was in his early 20s, he'd been a sponsored athlete in two completely different sports that require different muscle groups, different equipment, and totally different skill sets. When we come back, Elliot talks about his career as a professional mountain biker, the mentality behind his mastery, and how life changed after George Floyd was murdered last year.
I've had a lot of portable speakers because I travel a lot and music is awesome. And the Sonos Roam is the best one I've owned. They sent me one this week and not only is the design sleek and minimalistic, but the sound is so crisp and clear. It was easy to set up with my phone and it automatically switches from Wi-Fi to Bluetooth wherever you go. It even tunes itself to your surroundings so that the sound is always clear and perfectly balanced like you're in your own recording studio, which is very cool for a podcast nerd like me. Best of all, this thing is durable and waterproof, so it will definitely be coming with me to the beach this summer. You can discover Sound Made Easy at Sonos, S-O-N-O-S dot com. In the same pioneering spirit of our podcast, Teva is all about bringing wild ideas to life. Their premise is simple. Create a world with less plastic and more freedom. A bold concept? Absolutely. But let's not forget Teva was born from a bold idea on the Colorado River back in 1984. An innovator in the sport sandal category, Teva transitioned 100% of its iconic straps to traceable, verifiable recycled plastic using Reprieve yarn last year, diverting over 40 million bottles from landfills. They're back at it this spring, breaking the mold with a fresh batch of earth-friendly sandals. We're talking feel-good footwear that utilizes recycled materials and sustainable practices. So whether you're seeking a sidewalk-ready silhouette like the original Universal or hiking performance from the Terrify, Teva has a pair for you. Discover consciously crafted Teva sandals this spring with select colors available at your local REI and at REI.com. For seven years, Elliot was a full-time professional mountain biker with an impressive array of accomplishments. For a few years, he was one of the top three mountain bikers in the entire United States. He also ranked in the top 10 at the UCI Mountain Bike World Cup. Just qualifying for the World Cup is a big deal in the mountain biking world. And Elliot qualified the very first year of his entire professional career. So Elliot, with World Cup, can you tell people who are clueless about mountain biking like me what it is and how you like, got in in a year, which I think is unheard of or pretty rare. (laughs) Yeah. So the way that I describe downhill racing is like, I think more people are familiar with like downhill ski racing. So like what you see in the Olympics where you go to the top of a mountain, they tape it off in the trees, down ski runs and things like that. And the runs are maybe three to five minutes. You're just trying to get the fastest time. You're the only person there. And it's really interesting because you have six to seven World Cup races. So there's a series. And then you have one world championship race. So you can kind of imagine how much the mental side of things plays in where you're training six, seven months. And then it's like, all right, you have three minutes to be perfect. Now go. (laughs) And, you know, my path into it was really just wanting to race the World Cups. Like that is what I wanted to do. And, you know, I saved up some money, read the rule book and and like cover to cover so many times. So I knew exactly how to go from being an amateur to a pro, what races I needed to do to get points. And I ended up going with my mom. And then we went to national championships and I qualified fifth and was 
like on track for a great run and crash in my finals. And I was like, man, like, I am not going to get to do this this year. Like, this was my last chance to get points, but I had read the rule book. So I like went up to the commissaire and was like, hey, I want to partition to be on the US team because there's two US spots for each race. And he was like, yeah, like there is a race in the US later this year, but like a lot of people are petitioning and like you haven't done super well. And I was like, well, what about Italy? He's like, well, it's next weekend. And I was like, all good to me or whatever. And so I flew from Colorado home, like ditched my friends that I had driven with there, picked up my mom and my brother. We flew to Italy as my first time out of the country and uh, didn't know what jet lag was or anything like that and ended up in my qualifying run so once i was there only 80 people would qualify and i'd been riding and i went down the hill and i was trying to do this jump and i didn't quite make it and my chain came off but luckily italy is like so steep and you actually don't need to pedal that much so i was like i can still do this like i can still do it just don't break just everything you've done throughout the whole weekend just do it way better and so i ended up coming down i remember my brother had this video of my bike making all these noises and i came through the finish line in like 70th place and i was like oh no like i'm not gonna make it and somebody was like no i think you'll be fine because even though there's like 200 people there, the fastest people go first. So it's like really rare for you to get beat. Um, after a while, I ended up qualifying like 76th or something like that at my first race. It was kind of a big deal because at the time, there weren't a lot of American racers who would qualify for the races. It was maybe only three or four. And that was kind of the start of it. I ended up doing that other World Cup in the US since I had points and ended up getting on the Yeti team that next year. And that was the start of my career. What's the day-to-day in being a professional athlete? Like you started young and it wasn't easy. What what does that look like? Because I think we all have this picture that it's glorious. (laughs) Totally. I, I, I think it is. It is glorious, but I think it is like crazy hard. I mean, the thing I always say is like anyone can be a professional athlete. Like you just go and, and practice, right? But the reason people don't do it is because nobody wants to get up at 6 a.m. and practice every single day. Like eventually you don't want to ride your bike. So in the mountain biking space, you know, I was when I was at that level, is much higher than when I was racing motocross. But I had a trainer and in the off season, especially, it's kind of like the traditional way that people think of athletes where you're waking up in the morning, like watching what you eat, going and doing like a two or three hour road ride and then going to the gym after that, getting some lunch and then going back maybe for an evening session. And then once you get home, you need to stretch. And then sometimes I would like watch film or whatever. And like your only job really is to train rest so you can train again and and eat it's not like you're working for 14 hours a day you might be only be able to train for six hours like every single thing is structured about that like every single thing you do every single thing you think about is how to get better at this sport and i think the other piece of it that is added into that is just like the mental part of saying like i have to try harder than i did yesterday or else i don't have a job And even if I try as hard as I can, I might just not do well enough and then I get fired. So just to be able to do this, I have to perform at a certain level. There's pressure there. And then kind of the whole mental aspect, you're really trying to find any edge that you can, whether through like sports psychology or whatever. So it's a life, like it's an all-consuming thing. 
you have like a really good head about you, your training, the way you approach life, the way you're approaching your business. Who taught you that? Any any tips? <laughs> did you have a sports psychologist? I I did at one point. There was a, there's actually an interesting story there. I went to the sports psychologist and so you have like alpha brain waves, beta brain waves and theta brain waves. Theta is when you're sleeping, beta is when you're thinking about the past and the future, and alpha is when you're thinking about the present. So we we took this test. It's like these weird things. You like try not to blink. You have like a reaction time thing. And then you just try to clear your head. And so my score was like really good on the beta side of things when I'm thinking about the past or whatever. And I was like really bad at alpha, right? Like <laughs> being in the present. And so the thing that we did to train that was uh, they had these this thing you would put on your head and it would measure your brain waves. And when you start I've done off, it. it's neurofeedback. Totally. And so it's so wild because when you're making the correct brain wave, you get feedback. And to start off, you know, maybe you've had this where you close your eyes, you try to get music to play. And it was super strange because you would be like, oh my God, I'm getting it to play. And then as soon as you think about it, it, it shuts off. And <laughs> I did the thing where you try to race a car down a road. Yeah, that's what I did the second, like after. It's hard. And, it, and it's just like, you're like willing it to go. But what it's training you to do is kind of like that flow state where you're trying to give yourself some sort of feedback where you can say like, ah, this is what it means to be in the flow state. And here are the triggers that I can use to get there. But I think in terms of like, I don't know, my outlook on life. Like, I think I'm just very curious and I love learning. I love thinking about stuff. And I don't know, I've just like had so many experiences in my life. Like I, I talk about this idea of like there being this carrot on a stick where people are like, ah, like if only I was a professional athlete or if only I had this or if only I lived there. And like, I think I've been lucky enough to like get that carrot on a stick <laughs> in a lot of ways and have those experiences that a lot of people haven't. And once you do that, you kind of realize that you have to switch, right? Like it's all on you to be able to motivate yourself. Like there is not this like existential thing that is going to solve all your problems. And so I think for me, it's just been interesting kind of like, being able to have the privilege of doing all this amazing things and then saying like, okay, what is, what is like happiness truly, you know, how do I like live that? What is happiness for you? For me, like happiness is like doing things that are core to my personality. Like I think all of the things that I do have this common thread of being able to think deeply about something, being able to master something, being able to like get better at something every single day. And like, just like pull the string, like you just keep pulling the string and seeing where it leads. And I think that that to me is like what satisfies like and problem solving, like that satisfies like the core of my personality. I don't know what everyone else would say, but I, I feel like that pursuit of satisfying like what is core to you, I think is what happiness is. And I think it's, it's something that's always moving, right? Like what satisfies me today or even like when I was racing, right? Like that used to satisfy me, but now it doesn't. Um, so I have to keep working to find that thing. After seven years of full-time mountain biking, Elliot decided to partially retire. 
He was ready to pursue other interests and keep pulling on other threads. These days, Elliot works as a software engineering consultant, and he recently started a nonprofit. He occasionally races for Santa Cruz bikes. He's also a Red Bull presenter interviewing athletes at bike races around the entire globe. And even though he's not a full-time mountain biker anymore, he has a big voice in the cycling community. Last year, after George Floyd was murdered, Elliot posted a video on his Instagram account. He talked about how frustrated he was with the cycling community's reaction to George Floyd being killed. In the video, Elliot opened up about his perspective as a black man watching his community react to the Black Lives Matter movement. What was it like for you to post that video? Yeah, it was super interesting. Um, I never thought that that would have gotten a good reaction because it was really just me doing something out of frustration and kind of like blowing off some steam because the thing that was frustrating for me was was not the action of the industry that I was in. I don't expect anyone to, you know, like in a perfect world, sure, everyone would be on the same page and and but that's just not that's just not true. And people have different views. And so the thing that was frustrating was kind of the reaction to what was going on because it felt like the I think the cycling world thought that they were kind of in this bubble that was removed from reality. It was like, yeah, we don't have that problem here. Like outdoors is open to everyone kind of thing. It's like, yeah, it is open to everyone. But like if I live in the middle of a city and the closest mountain is two hours away, like it's not as accessible. Or when I am riding on the street and I get pulled over or something like that, or like I don't have bike lanes in my town. Like there are things that are objectively not as accessible just by the chance of where you were born at. And so I think that that was kind of the frustration where it was like, there are things that you guys are kind of missing. And it was a little bit frustrating to see that an industry that made such a point to say we are so inclusive and we are so open and accepting to not be able to be introspective enough to recognize some of the privilege that we have when we're able to ride these mountain bikes. A few months after Elliot posted that video, he decided he wanted to focus on a tangible way to make mountain biking more accessible and more equitable. He decided to partner with his mom to create the nonprofit called Grow Cycling Foundation. You have this rad Grow Cycling Foundation now. I want to hear about all about it, what the mission is, when you started it, why you started it. Yeah, I never in a million years thought that I would be involved with a nonprofit or especially, you know, start a nonprofit. But it was interesting to me because in that moment last year, when I did have a chance to say, like, what is my voice? Like, there wasn't a lot of advocacy in the mountain biking space. I think in the cycling space in general, there is advocacy in the roadside or the commuter side, kind of the community side of things. But in the mountain biking space, like, it's pretty bare. I think that goes to show, right, like, 
what sort of access there is for mountain bike racing or kind of high-end cycling industry stuff. So what Grow Cycling Foundation is, our mission is to promote education, access, and opportunity that advance diversity and inclusion in cycling. So our main initiative is building a pump track in Los Angeles. And there's nothing like that in Los Angeles right now. You have skate parks, but but no pump tracks. What's a pump track? Yes. So a pump track is just this, it can be dirt, but we're building it as asphalt. And it's just like the series of rollers. And you can ride it on a skateboard or scooter or bicycle. Like a two-year-old can ride it, a 90-year-old can ride it. And so it's this really amazing way that we can actually, instead of trying to bring the city to the outdoors, you can actually bring a slice of the outdoors to the city. And because I think that in the cycling space and in the outdoor space, we we think that people are kind of like beating down the doors to to get in, but it's actually not true at all. Because, you know, if I've grown up in the city and you kind of think logically about it, none of my friends do this sport. There's not a good image around this sport. I have to travel like a long way to do this sport. I have to do this, like put in this decent investment. Even if I get a used bike, I have to put in this decent investment. So like, why would I go through all of this trouble to get involved in this sport when I could do something that fits my culture, where I'm welcome, where like my friends are doing it, where I have community around it. And so for me, that pump track is a way to introduce people to this. And, and so like, that's for us, like kind of creating community to say like, yes, we need to bring culture in. Like, let's get the local barbecue place involved. Let's bring music, let's bring art. And then kind of the other piece of that is in schools. So you have to have an entry point. So we are putting kindergarten and first grade programs in the entire school district that we're going into to teach kids how to ride bikes. It's a Striders nonprofit arm and then sixth through eighth grade programs as well in all 11 schools. So you have this place to learn how to ride a bike, and then you have a safe place to ride that bike. And then you, you know, hopefully can go on to have a career in cycling. And so the way I think about it is just like creating these paths, right? Like you don't have to have a career in cycling. You can ride down the street with your friends and and that's successful as well. But I think it's about kind of thinking about this holistically to say, what are the ways in which people might not be introduced to this that might not have access? And so all of these things that I've mentioned, like these are good for everyone, right? Like everyone can benefit from a pump track in their community. Everyone can benefit at that school from riding a bike. Everyone can benefit from getting a job that's well-paying. It's just that the places that we're putting them are disproportionately affecting a certain group of people. It's fascinating. This whole concept sounds amazing. So you came up with this last year? Yeah, we launched in August and we've raised just over like a quarter of a million dollars that will go toward the pump track. And we've partnered with all of the top manufacturers in the biking world and so many other people like Fat Tire and Hydro Flask and so many cool people are supporting us, which is just amazing. Once again, Elliot's dreams are becoming a reality. With a vision for diversifying the sport he loves, Elliot has created the Grow Cycling Foundation in less than a year. He firmly believes that if he can help more kids get on bikes, then they can have some of the opportunities Elliot had. Elliot Jackson, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
sharing your story, your mindset, and your work in the world with us. Your discipline, your dedication, your curiosity, and your just total gung-ho-ness totally inspires me. You can follow Elliot on his Instagram. It's at Elliot Jackson. That's E-L-I-O-T-J-A-C-K-S-O-N. If you want to learn more about the Grow Cycling Foundation, visit growcyclingfoundation.org. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Sylvia Thomas, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby, and our presenting sponsor this season is Ford. I have a new podcast right now. It's called Vitamin Joy. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow me at Shelby Stanger. As always, we appreciate when you follow this show, rate it, and review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Mm -hmm.